Ladies and gentlemen, friends, uh, welcome on this uh, gray and rainy morning. My uh, name is uh, Kate Hansenbund. I'm the Secretary General of the Norwegian Atlantic Committee and the Chair of the Board at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. And this seminar is a joint effort for, uh, from us uh, to focus on a project on hybrid threats uh, that has been going on on NUPI and to discuss these highly uh, timely uh, questions today. I will not uh, bother you with anything more. I will just introduce today's moderator, which are uh, Kjell Dragnes, known to most of you as Aftenposten's uh, former foreign editor and also a journalist and a specialist on Russia. Please, Kjell, I will leave the panel. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And the speakers to you. Uh, most of you have not come here to listen to me because we have three excellent speakers here today. So I'll be very short uh, in my introduction, but this is a very interesting theme. And this theme is, uh, some, uh, some say, nothing new. When I read through all the papers, uh, especially what the NUPI has done in their project, I found one of the most interesting things. I said we have to establish a baseline of what is normal. That is the starting point for the whole discussion. I just came from Brussels, and it was by chance, because there was a strike in Brussels. And that is normal in G Belgium. So when do you decide whether a strike by baggage handlers or uh, air traffic controllers, or you have a technical problem, is not an element of hybrid warfare? <laughs> How do you establish that? Because it's normal, as I said, that there is always a stoppage in Belgium. Anyway, I'm here. And uh, <coughs> to start, um, start out, uh, the, uh, and some of you and the panelists will, come, uh, will go uh, deeper into that, is that um, we have um, had a discussion whether this hybrid terminology, whether it's something new or something old whether it's only uh, uh, old uh, terms, old concepts in a new package. I tend to think that it is, this is quite new, but there are elements that we can see from way back when. And um, <coughs> I have done some research. Even journalists can do some research sometimes. And I found a uh, cosmic top secret document from Secure, it's now 1952, so it's declassified. That's why I'm able to see it. And uh, this document was about what they called psychological warfare in Europe in wartime. And I'll just give you one of the definitions, because uh, I know uh, when you're going to speak about this, you will give a new definition of what is hybrid threats, hybrid warfare. Or maybe, maybe not, because you're, you're not accustomed to giving definitions as I think you said in the, in the document that all agree that this is a problem. Nobody agrees on what is the definition of a problem. But anyway, in this uh, <coughs> cosmic top secret document from Secure, they said that psychological warfare, as defined, includes the planned use in time of war by NATO nations and NATO commanders of authorized propaganda and related informational measures designed to influence the opinions, emotions, attitude, and behavior of the enemy, neutral or friendly groups, 
in such a manner as to support agreed NATO plans, policies, and objectives. That's point 14. Uh, and then again, they go through uh, what propaganda warfare from the NATO side should be. Uh, it's white, white propaganda that is true. It's uh, gray or it's black. I think what we have nowadays is a gray zone. And there's a mixture, really, of uh, new elements. Uh, and this is a mixture that, is that we can't really tell whether it's something normal or something new going on. And that is the big problem, and that's what I think we will be uh, enlightened on uh, later today by our three excellent speakers. So, uh, wi without further ado, uh, I'll give the word to Njord Wegge, who will give us, uh, in 10, 15 minutes, will give uh, uh, an explanation of what is going on uh, in this field and what the research they have done. So, thank you. Yeah, so as you heard, at uh, NUTI we have had um, a pretty long project now for four years where we have um, investigated uh, hybrid warfare and uh, in an international context called uh, Multinational Capability Development Campaign. Uh, you see the flags here, it's mostly NATO countries but also a few others. And uh, this has been an unclassified um, concept development uh, project uh, where we have tried to um, uh, investigate uh, uh, relevant threats and developments. And uh, hybrid <coughs> warfare or and how to counter it has been one of these uh, streams, strengths. Uh, it has been the Minister of Defense in Norway that have funded it, and the customers have also been the MOD, but also other civilians and international actors have been very interested in our work. So it has been divided into two cycles. It's the first uh, uh, from 2015-16, focusing on how to understand the concept, and that's what I'll talk more about, and also how to research this phenomena, developing an analytical framework. While in the last two years, we have been putting the countering more in the focus, uh, focusing how to warn and deter and respond to hybrid warfare. So let's just start with this at uh, the introduction also. Uh, we heard it from the in the introduction. Hybrid warfare is a disputed term. Uh, it's at least disputed because several researchers and commentators would say there's no such thing as hybrid warfare, it's all the same. It's, you know, war has always been politics with other means. Uh, this, is, this is nothing new since the antique. Uh, another uh, dimension of the dispute have been to, the to use the term warfare. Is it maybe more um, correct to say hybrid influence, hybrid threats? Do we really talk about war here? So why do we talk about this term? Well, um, the operational environment is constantly changing. And as we know, um, the West have conventionally been uh, superior to most adversary for a long period. And this is obviously what um, threat actors try to uh, exploit. Um, if uh, we can't uh, beat the West through conventional means, there might be other ways to do it. So uh, the essence is, in a way, uh, to see um, the blurred area between peace and war as a new area of, uh, of um, combat or um, uh, yeah, warfare, where you are challenging the sort of like normal established 
bordering lines between peace and war, making it very hard for us in uh, open liberal um, democracies ruled by law to apply many of those extraordinary powers that might be uh, legal in times of war, for example. And it also expands basically the battle, fi uh, the battle file from um, focusing on the kinetic dimension of warfare to more the non-kinetical and ide ideological or uh, um, uh, cognitive uh, aspects of the conflict. And, uh, and there's a lack of doctrines for uh, meeting this threat from the West. If we go back in literature, the academic literature on the concept, it has its origin from um, uh, Frank Hoffman's writing on uh, Hezbollah and how Israel for a long time had a very hard uh, time actually meeting this unconventional threat. It was a mixture of maybe terrorism, criminal behavior, conventional uh, weaponry, etc. And as we know, this um, threat was a non-state actor, but still very capable. However, uh, the debate suddenly um, uh, recognized that it's too much focus on the kinetic, traditional, conventional aspects of, uh, of, the, tr uh, like of, the, of the new phenomena, hybrid warfare. So in, um, in an evolution of the concept in the literature, we have seen that there has been new um, threat actors, for example, state actors. Uh, the Russian operations in Cr Crimea and Ukraine has become sort of like the new standard reference often in this literature. Also, ISIL's uh, growth and uh, capacities and ability to, to make a, a very significant resistance has been uh, uh, one of the standard references. And of course, today, there's a lot of like election hacking, uh, cyber attacks, uh, fake news. All of these sort of like very current threats has has been uh, reflected in this debate on hybrid warfare. Um, and uh, the latter point here, let me just uh, quickly address that. So, so from the Russian perspective, uh, there's um, a very uh, significant uh, paper from 2013, so one year before Crimea, written by the chief of staff, uh, Valery Gerasimov. He writes and reflects about the future and current state of warfare and says that Future wars will be conducted with a one-to-four ratio between military means and non-military means. And, and in his research, this was basically reflecting on how the West, viewed from Russia, was conducting their sort of like, or re trying to reach their political goals through using non-military means. However, from the Western side, this has been, uh, you know, uh, le th th this uh, paper led to speculation if this was so sort of like a new... Russian doctrine of, of hybrid warfare. So in the intellectual debate on this phenomena, it's important to be aware of this sort of like dual use of, of the concept. And uh, just to have some uh, pictures uh, in mind, this is typically what we currently might associate. It's ISIL, it's Crimea. So we have seen in our project that it's hard to, to agree on a definition. Uh, it has been international, it has been combined uh, of uh, military and uh, civilians and researchers. So uh, we ended up with a description of how we see it that we all could agree on. And, 
And the description, that's kind of a definition of course, is the synchronized use of multiple instruments of power tailored to specific vulnerabilities across the full spectrum of societal function to achieve synergistic effects. So it needs to be synchronized, it needs to be tailored to vulnerabilities, and it needs to be across the spectrum of societal function to have syn synergistic effects. So for example, a single election hacking or a cyber attack or, or, or like an independent event does not qualify to what we mean with a hybrid warfare concept. So it, it needs to be synchronized, it needs to be across the spectrum of, uh, of several, um, or several aspects of society. And as we write under here, it also needs to sort of like have some of these non-linearity, ambiguity, exploit cognitive elements, those type of, of um, dimension to it. And the last sentence, like the death by thousand ambiguous cuts is very il illustrative. I mean, it's not the single cut. That might be very ambiguous, hard to, to attribute, but it's the, the sum of all of these uh, like events at the same time that might qualify for, for actually using the term hybrid warfare. So this is also an illustration. It's the sort of like the expansion of battlef battlefield into several different dimensions of society where you could, or a threat actor could, you know, utilize different uh, aspects of society uh, to, um, to try to reach their political goals, wi goals while not crossing the border of like obvious violence or like obvious an act of war that, for example, in the NATO context would um, result in Article 5 response. So this is some of the problem. In the West, we, we lack this capacity to define the problem, to agree on it, and also how to detect it. We talked about what's the baseline. Um, yeah, there are natural occurrences in the electric grid. There could be you know, uh, demonstrations, but what is normal, what is not normal? That's a, that's a key problem when we want to, to look for uh, uh, in like in intense, like uh, an actor that's behind the events. But when it's very close to being like normal, and it's the it's the breadth of all of this at the same time that's making the problem for us. So, in, uh, ultimately, it could also lead to, for example, NATO being incapable of acting because it's like too much debate about if is it really happening or uh, or the the will uh, to act has been exploited by internal divisions, etc. So, with a free press, this is uh, you know obviously something you could exploit. Uh, there's no censorship people could disagree and you know it's sometimes hard to to reach a conclusion in, a, in an open democracy so we'll go back to this later on the implications for Norway but I think we could briefly say that something we have found in our project is that there's a big sector thinking that's um, making a problem for looking uh, across the society um, uh, uh, understanding sort of like the overall picture of this potential threat and we need to establish a better situational awareness. That's, uh, that's something we need to do. And Finland, we might hear more about it, have established uh, not only the Center of Excellence, uh, which is an international corporation, it, they also have a national uh, unit under the Prime Minister's office where they are report like receiving reports from all of society, try to have the full picture of, of um, what could potentially be an intended uh, or intended actions from uh, an adversary. And finally, there might be needs to develop new doctrines and even legal uh, development to, to handle this threat. Our uh, 
next speaker is Hanna Smith from the European Center of Excellence for countering hybrid threats. As Njord said, uh, the experiences are different from different countries, and now we'll be not only getting the European view, but also the Finnish view, and I think that's very important for us, especially here in Norway, because we tend to be a little bit nearsighted. And uh, to have another Nordic country with a different uh, affiliation to the international security uh, bodies, I think we will be very interesting to see what their experiences are and uh, how they are trying to counter a threat emanating from some neighbor. Thank you very much and good morning uh, for everybody. Thank you for the two organizers for inviting me here today to share some of the thoughts. Um, it is a little bit now in the way that this starts to look like a hybrid already uh, since, yes, I am Finnish, but uh, I am working on a more of international uh, center, which is n not, um, I mean, it's called the European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. It's not EU, it's not NATO, it is for its member states. Uh, NATO and EU members can be part of our center. We have three non-NATO uh, members and three non-EU members. So it is really a mixed and quite confusing looking at it like that. Also, uh, in uh, my little intervention, I think I'm concentrating on, uh, basically I was, uh, the organizers sent me some questions to focus or areas to focus on, and that's what I will do. In the questions, uh, you are very welcome to ask uh, more perhaps uh, about Finland and so on. First of all, the big question uh, is uh, about uh, the question about the threat. We heard now uh, quite a lot already about how possibly to define uh, or, um, as we call it in our center, characterization of the hybrid threats. So the elements that make basically the threat. But one thing that is uh, uh, very good to keep in mind is the question again, why? Why are we talking about hybrid threat, hybrid warfare? Personally, I do think that it is good that we're using that term whether we agree that it's a new or old, because it anyway highlights today's uh, era, today's time, our time, and the threats we are facing. Um, it is good to, when we're asking the question of why, to have uh, the changes around our security environment in mind. So we have uh, a change in the world order. One can say that you know, the post-Cold War world order is over, meaning that something new is coming into the place. When there is competition over status, uh, uh, states are starting to push in a new way, they are in strategic interest, etc. That means that there also has to be mechanisms of influence in different ways. The technological revolution has brought a new type uh, of a means into uh, the toolkit. We have uh, also new domains, the cyber, space, uh, are definitely those. It has changed the media landscape uh, very significantly. Again, new opportunities. Then the generational change, um, actually in the research and historical terms, it's not one uh, generation, but it is around three. And then happens uh, a quite significant uh, a change in the way that the environment has changed so much that not anymore grandparents or parents' historical memory uh, is taking quite the same way. 
the memory relating to uh, Cold War conflict, the ideological conflict, is not quite the same anymore or, or viewed the same way today than it used to be. The same thing re is relating to authoritarian states, for example, or leaders, uh, strong leaders, the image of it. Uh, in one point, in during a Cold War, that was a really, really bad thing. Nobody wanted to be uh, kind of characterized like that. Now, it seems to be quite a positive thing to be almost authoritarian and a strong leader. Um, and then we have the interconnectedness. Uh, basically, we're talking about the globalization. The one that should be the answer uh, uh, solving all the conflicts has uh, shown us the dark side. It has brought us uh, totally new types of uh, things. Perhaps uh, what we talk what, uh, in the previous presentation was talked about the you know the uh, face between uh, war and peace. That means that it is uh, kind of interfaces between internal, external, local state, non-state, state, etc. Uh, at the same time, it has brought a, a new kind of networks, for example, that one entity alone is not so strong or not threatening, but together in a network, they can actually uh, start influencing. So, in fact, many of you have probably heard about the changing character of war or conflict, but perhaps we should be actually talking about the changing character of peace, because this has clearly put the democratic states into a defense, even by far, we are still uh, the strongest actor. There should not be any questions about that. But what we have forgotten is that the nature of democracy is also in the way that it challenges time after time itself. And this has been fine in the evolution of basically democratic societies. But if an outside actor comes and challenges us in our space, that's a different story. And authoritarian states do want to challenge the democratic states because democracy, existence of democracy, is by default basically always a threat for them. And therefore, they have naturally tried to challenge that previously, 200 years ago, it was a war. You went to a war, uh, perhaps, if you felt that your system uh, was threatened. Today, you perhaps divert into uh, hybrid uh, mechanisms. Then when we come to the question of a uh, little bit of responses, are the West now, if this is the situation, we have a changing security environment, a lot of insecurity, changing character of peace, uh, and we, the democratic states, are on defense. Are we responding to this uh, correctly? First of all, the interesting aspect is that everybody is talking about the lessons learned from Cold War. Looking backwards, we already heard a very interesting paper uh, from 1952. Uh, again, similarities you can find there. But is this the way, actually? Because this is a, the, the human mind. You try to find the answers there, what you know. So Cold War context, it's something that we know very well. It is the battle of ideologies there. It, it was two superpowers basically controlling the world. But the world was much more simpler, I would argue, than, than today. And therefore, perhaps, uh, we can learn some or identify some lessons, but we should not think that today's world is a Cold War world. Then the debate. The other side is saying there is no threat whatsoever. This is just hyping. This is just warmongering. This is making us scared and trying to control us because of that. 
And then there is the other side who's saying, no, this is war. Don't you understand? This is a huge thing. We need to all go into the barricades and defend uh, our lands. Somehow, this debate is almost exactly a success for the adversary. Because of the fact that we are dividing ourselves, forgetting the art of listening and debating constructively. One of those actor, uh, facts why democracies were almost created. Not to have a conflict uh, as a fighting, so that people are dying, but actually listening the other side and uh, then basically debating it constructively. Dialogue, missing. In our societies, uh, inside of our societies, as well as in international <laughs> politics. Um, then perhaps is the understanding. Um, there is a quite well already, I would argue, that understanding around that something in administrative culture needs to change. Exactly this thing that you can't anymore stay in your silos. Uh, defense ministry is not uh, uh, on its own. Uh, foreign ministry is not on its own. Uh, military is not on its own. Interior ministry is not on our own. And then on top of that, public-private, uh, you know, the private side, not anymore so alone either. Um, when it comes to the NGOs, etc., or local authorities, um, not either. So the understanding that these entities need to work together better is there, but it's very difficult. Uh, a lot of countries have done changes to it, has started to uh, work on it, but it hasn't necessarily yet come to the point that one could say that this is in order. Then, relating to the normative framework, uh, already mentioned the question of legal resilience. Even there, uh, a lot of countries have noticed this, that rule of law is the one that we need to try to protect. However, that can also limit our responses or not give us a tools to respond. And therefore, we need to think about that. And there is a um, Finnish example anyway, is relating to also when you look at that the um, annexation of Crimea, the little green men. So men without the insignia comes on land. What to do? Do uh, your country have a law that even police can shoot those men? Most countries don't. Now, in, a, uh, in Finland, actually, the, the law was changed in the way that you don't need to anymore wait for the hierarchical thing go into the uh, kind of very lengthy process of decision, but the police actually has an authority uh, to shoot in case uh, an armed man without insignia, which look like a state soldier, uh, comes onto land. But not everybody has that kind of a legal framework yet. Then also the understanding of that countering is primarily the national responsibility. And yet this threat crosses borders and possibly threatens us from somewhere else even and not on, from our own soil. So the understanding of this kind of uh, international cooperation is uh, quite um, uh, important. I would argue there that, again, here the wake-up call has happened, but not quite knowing exactly how. We have an EU which has a unity uh, already, several solidarity clauses. We have a NATO, which has an Article 5. But since, as also shown in the previous presentation, this whole thing is designed not to go, not to trigger those uh, uh, clauses we have. 
this has become a little bit complicated. And also the same way, then it is in a national level, uh, this is a difficult, you know, how do you give some other country a say or, or rely on it uh, in your own response? This is a very strongly psychological aspect. And then finally, how to connect with the society. If old politics is broken, then uh, perhaps what has happened is, um, and many of you from prob probably identify this, the fact that uh, you get an argument and then the others are trying to just counter-argue that. Uh, immigration policies or something. Someone says, no, this, this is dangerous. Um, and then others are arguing, no, it's not. And it doesn't go anywhere because you don't have your own position. So you need to not counter-argue, but argue from it your own perspective, make your own argument. In that way, perhaps the politics and the society can connect again. This, in fact, is usually a weakness in authoritarian states, interestingly, that the uh, political elite do not necessarily connect with the people. And this is exactly uh, uh, almost one of the reasons that you don't engage and you don't uh, talk about these issues. This is again, one could argue, one of almost the victories uh, from the other side, because if they get our politics like that, that we don't anymore uh, form our own uh, opinions and argue, we just say, no, it's not like that. This is an easiest thing to do, to actually just say, no, you're not right. But how about argue, why aren't you right? And what is your position relating to that? So there is uh, a lot of issues that has happened from the Western uh, perspective, a lot of responses also, but there is in fact a lot to do. And then final uh, miniature two I use for uh, talking about our center and what we have done. Um, uh, this picture uh, we like to uh, show quite often, the Finnish prime minister and the Finnish president um, hosting um, Mogherini and Stoltenberg, I think, uh, in uh, our inauguration um, uh, seminar uh, last year. And this highlights quite a lot, I think, uh, one of the issues that why our center has been brought together. What I was talking about, that primarily national, but needing international. Also alliances like EU and NATO, in fact, both have their own strengths, and then they have a certain weaknesses where the other can actually help a lot. This highlights quite a lot. We have been existing for one year, and I could argue that uh, our existence already has brought more awareness of what we're talking about when we're talking about the hybrid threat and hybrid warfare. There has been the networks that are essential for countering this. This is uh, the essence of our center, in fact, is uh, to get the networks to actually use the same mechanism so you amplify the strength by through networks, exactly how basically one of the characterizations inside of the hybrid threat and hybrid warfare is. Uh, one of the central issues, why probably we were set up, is also the fact that you learn from each other and you learn uh, about each other. So it is the best, sharing the best practice and uh, building the trust. There is still a lot to do on that, 
but we have started at least uh, a part of it. And I would argue that definitely uh, in some cases, because it's not like that, that the Finnish model is something that would fit uh, directly for Norway or <laughs> let alone uh, France. But there might be uh, some element that Norway could learn uh, from us and then they might learn something amazingly from France who has done uh, quite good work, in fact, uh, relating to information uh, influencing and also their mechanisms about uh, relating to the elections and so on. Otherwise, uh, perhaps France have a lot to learn from uh, the Nordic countries. So this is exactly the, the meaning. And the trust building is the fact that l learning to listen, basically. The EU-NATO cooperation, there has been a lot of activity. And uh, I would argue that the EU and NATO has never talked to each other the way how during this year they have done. So our, of course, role there has been mostly to facilitate. But sometimes even that type of a role, to, to have a place, safe place, to come together, uh, someone who facilitates in a neutral way uh, actually helps the dialogue. We have had also open source training. This is important. The information sharing does not need to happen in a classified level. Open source, uh, basically, information sharing can be as, I would argue, a fruitful almost than the classified one. We started too quickly going into, oh, everybody <coughs> needs to share the classified information. No, that was not uh, the right approach at all. Eventually, someday, possibly, and as you saw, um, or s some of you saw perhaps uh, relating to the Salisbury. The fact that when there is trust and when there is a mechanism of finding from the open source information enough facts, you don't necessarily need to open up all of your uh, kind of classified information. Tabletop exercising is something that uh, uh, also brings people together quite uh, well and uh, um, gives the sense of what is going on. And then uh, finally, um, in the research side, also to trying to connect unrelated areas, the public and private, but also technology and social science. Technology has a lot of means to harvest information, etc., etc., but it still doesn't compensate perhaps uh, the, the human brain. So you need to connect these things, but they haven't. We have all the places, good research, good knowledge, good technology. But again, even there, the connection needs to be made. So I think uh, the message, what I'm trying to say here is that, first of all, we need to understand that our world is now not how it used to be. But second, if we kind of remind us why we are strong, what is the basis of why we like democracies, by the way, and most of the other uh, world too, um, then this is a threat that can be countered, but it needs uh, all kind of level cooperation also. Thank you very much. You raised a lot of interesting uh, themes and a lot of questions. And for me as a press person, uh, I think uh, a couple of things were, were more interesting than the others, especially the open source and not the, uh, the closed or, in, uh, or classified areas. Because with open sources nowadays, we can in fact uh, do a lot of work. But it all depends on the press uh, itself, whether it has the means or the abilities or the will to do that.
I'm not quite sure. We'll get back to that. So now for the Norwegian experience, Geir Hagen Carlsen, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel, oh right, sorry. Uh, so you'll give us the, uh, the uh, Norwegian perspective and then uh, after the, your presentation we'll get all of these speakers up here and then we can ask some questions. Okay. Thank you very much, Kjell, and uh, thanks to everybody and those organizing. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about this. Uh, and as Hannah said, uh, the unclassified, the general information and engaging all parts of society is, in my opinion, the most important. Uh, and then people like me and ministries and security organs can, can work the, uh, the classified later on. Um, I'm going to talk about the, uh, I'm going to start off talking about where we stand right now. And I think it was, uh, was Njord that mentioned that we, we have to figure out what is normal and what is not normal. Uh, right now, um, states are influencing each other. Uh, and Russia is definitely running large scale and rather complex influence activities against the West. We've seen that in the US and a whole range of other places. Uh, the aim of this, uh, in my opinion, is to reduce NATO and EU cohesion. And there is broad agreement on this. I've analyzed the open classified reports from 15 uh, Western Secret Services over the last five years. So that's pretty much uh, the general opinion. Uh, another important thing is that I, they want to have the, the sanctions removed, uh, which is, uh, they are hitting the, the uh, the leadership, so that's also, um, there's broad agreement and it's it's very logic. Uh, the Russian approach is divide and rule. Um, and the US has taken legal action on a number of cases and they uh, they sued, they charged one, one uh, Russian uh, woman uh, who was the financier for these, uh, or, or a large part of these operations. Uh, and that, um, in the legal documents, it was clearly stated that that approach was to, to uh, work on every disagreement, every political issue that was uh, controversial in the U.S. And we've seen the same in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, so that's also a, a broad agreement to that point. Um, Norway and other countries are certainly being influenced, and, and Russia has particular interests in, in other areas. For Norway, energy, obviously, um, the Arctic, uh, and uh, military activity in Norway, especially in northern Norway. Uh, we saw the, uh, we just saw the, um, the warning about the missile shooting uh, that came out the other day. Um, I think we should look at this in, in this context. It's, it's a way of influencing our decision making and making clear that, that uh, they do not agree with our policies. Um, and by the way, for those of you that read the newspaper Klassikampen, which is a, a, a very, very good and, and professional newspaper, their front page today was not correct. It said that the, uh, the ministries had stood up the crisis uh, staff, uh, but that, that's not correct. It was, a, uh, it was a meeting to coordinate, which is, which is normal. I mean, different ministries will have to coordinate this issue. So uh, that was that. Uh, when it comes to Sweden and Finland, obviously, any cooperation with with NATO is, is sensitive seen from, from the Russian side. Uh, this said, uh, I think we have to be cautious. In my opinion, there is no reason to use uh, the term hybrid war in any way on, on what's going on today. Neither would I use the term propaganda war or information war or anything like that. 
But I do also acknowledge that if you go to the Baltic states, uh, there's a number of presidents and, and prime ministers and others that would say they, they're in sort of a hybrid war with, with Russia or Russia is running a psychological war on them. The Dutch Minister of Defense said a couple of weeks ago that was, Russia was waging a cyber war on them. But in my opinion, I think we, we have to be, be careful to use the term war. I think it's not. If we started using the term war today, um, uh, we have a long, long way before we start go shooting. So, so it wouldn't be constructive. Um, I'm a fan of simplifying things. Uh, I think we can, we can have broadly three, three classes of activity here. Influence and deterrence, that's what we experience in every day. And certainly we are deterring Russia and others. So that's, that's not surprising. Uh, second level is hybrid war or hybrid conflict, depends on the intensity and the tools being used. Uh, and the th third one is war, and I think everyone has a, a reasonable understanding what a war is. Uh, if we have a war, I'm absolutely sure that it will be um, linked to a hybrid war, probably before the war starts, before the shooting starts. Um, that's obvious. Uh, and hybrid war and hybrid tools and economic warfare, political warfare has always been part of military conflict. Uh, you can go way back. Uh, if I had more time, we could talk about that for hours with examples. Um, but we could have sort of a hybrid war or a hybrid conflict without starting to shoot at each other. That's, that's clearly possible. Um, this is an overview of possible tools. And I, I look at Russia in this case because that's our neighbor and, and the biggest challenge. But that said, we experienced a fair amount of, of uh, Chinese influence activities uh, linked to the Nobel Peace Prize seven years ago. So, so it's, it's not only Russia. Um, they can start on top with nuclear weapons, and, and they do demonstrate it. They use it as a, uh, as a tool of demonstrating strength. Uh, what Putin is talking about, high-speed nuclear um, uh, torpedoes that can sort of uh, drown the coast uh, or anything like that, any other fancy high-speed weapons. Uh, it's, it's a way of both influencing the external uh, audiences, but certainly also to... Uh, to uh, tell the Russian population that they're part of a strong nation, and that's very popular. Uh, the rest of the tools, military, diplomatic, information, that's really where I'm working. Uh, economic, Finland uh, does take a lot of their gas, almost all of it, and they do have uh, Russian nuclear power plants, so those are possible venues for, for influence. Cyber is probably the biggest area. Uh, if you ask secret services, both in Norway and elsewhere, they will, most of them will say that cyber is the, the most important area for influence. Uh, our uh, intelligence service has publicly said on several occasions that, for instance, the uh, um, oil and gas installations and the supply to Europe, is, uh, it has been uh, reconnoitered by the Russian secret services, and we should expect uh, sabotage in, in time of a crisis. Uh, if you go to the UK and elsewhere, they, they most have the same view. And certainly anything like that would probably amount to a hybrid conflict or hybrid war. It would have enormous consequences, both politically and economically, but also de facto in Europe, if we cut 25 or 30% of the gas supplies to Europe. 
Um, when we are looking at this, I think it's important to look at the Russian political objectives. And that should be the starting point. Because there is a lot of activity, uh, and I'm not sure if all this activity is very effective, even though it's large scale. For instance, um, Twitter just released a, uh, a uh, archive of 9 million tweets that were mainly aimed at US, but also British, French, and other Western countries' politics, uh, originating from a troll farm in St. Petersburg. And the Digital Forensic Research Laboratory, which is a part of the Atlantic Council, by the way, um, concluded that these tweets have little or no political impact. Uh, they did inflame some discussions, but that was mainly amongst people that were uh, inflamed and polarized already. Um, uh, I just mentioned that the U.S. has taken legal action, and they released the papers um, on the charge of, of uh, this uh, Russian woman that was organizing the finances for some of these activities. And, and those documents said that uh, there were no indications that the activity had had any outcome on elections anywhere. So we have to be careful to look at uh, the activity and, uh, and, and mix that with effectiveness, because it's probably not the case. Going back home um, to Norway, what are we going to do about this? Uh, first of all, with the uh, constitutional uh, system we have in Norway, it's the individual ministers that are responsible for the various areas. And when it comes to crisis management, the Minister of Justice is responsible. Uh, so uh, even though there are people saying that the Prime Minister's office or, or someone else should have a bigger role, I, I think realistically we have the system we have, uh, and the responsibility starts with the Minister of Justice. Um, that includes the responsibility to coordinate activities uh, cross-government. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of working both with the ministry and some of the other uh, linked, uh, like the Directorate for Police and the uh, Directorate for Civil Protection. And in my opinion, they are both very competent and uh, very qualified to handle this uh, if they're giving, given more extensive tasks. In general, um, we need to improve competence. And competence here is, is like we're talking about it today, so a hundred people or so will know more about it this afternoon than they knew this morning. Uh, um, so it, it's general competence. Uh, it's competence in media, and I must say I've been impressed by Norwegian media. They've, uh, they've since 2014, uh, they've had a, a, there's a lot of Norwegian journalists that know Russia and know what's going on very well. Uh, often Boston, for instance, Kjell, uh, are probably the first to, to report the manipulation of the elections down in, uh, in Crimea in 2014. They had a huge article uh, last week about uh, Russian troll farms. Uh, I was also interviewed. Uh, it's competence amongst decision makers. Uh, so w we have a, a way to go, but it's, uh, my experience is that they're, they're interested and, and keen on learning. And it's clearly on the political agenda. Uh, but we also need capability, and um, put it this way, uh, having a handful of doctors doesn't mean you have a hospital. Uh, we need to have someone uh, established structures with the necessary manpower and, and finances to, to work on this and do the coordination and, and support research uh, and a whole range of other things that needs to be done. Uh, and finally, it's about coordination. Um, and there is a lot of coordination that needs to be taken across uh, government. 
uh, with all the ministries and the way we're organized, the ministers are responsible. I think Nord mentioned that uh, you know we had this uh, death by a thousand uh, ambiguous cuts. Uh, one of the things we need is both the competence uh, to understand what is a, a cut and what is not a, and it, that it's not a, a strike, but it's really a cut that is organized. Uh, and also uh, the ability to see cross-government that, you know, there's a cut here, there's a cut there, there's a cut in third place, and there is something. This is something that is organized. It's not something that is just uh, happening. Uh, and then we need to do sector-specific things. Uh, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, this year's budget, the uh, Minister of Justice allocated 52 million kroner for uh, counter-hybrid and cyber uh, measures. 25 million went to the uh, security police to, uh, to handle various influence activities. That's one example where things are happening. If you look at the budget for um, Minister of Transportation, um, telecommunication is essential. Telecommunication is essential in almost all fields of, of society today. And even though we have, uh, I think we have three mobile network, uh, networks in Norway, uh, they all depend to a certain extent on the uh, Telenor networks and services. So there is allocation for more money to, to make them less dependent on Telenor so we can have more uh, available networks. Uh, there is money for, uh, to extend the power supplies for base stations so that we can have the mobile network running for longer time in times of crisis or power cuts. There is money for uh, uh, mobile base stations uh, so we can back up if something uh, is cut down. And there's money for more fiber cable uh, to improve the system. I'm just mentioning this to show that, you know, in, uh, there are measures to be taken in every ministry. Uh, I don't know what the most important are, uh, but just to show that there, there's a whole range of things. So if you take this at two levels, we have the, the general things here, competence, capability, and coordination. That covers everyone, and especially the, the Minister of Justice, and, and then all sorts of sector-specific. Uh, the newspaper Dagens Neidingsliv, uh, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, uh, mentioned a, a report from the Directorate for Civil Protection about the possible consequences of, a, of an attack on medical supplies. Uh, you know, we could expect thousands of deaths if, if some of these critical medicines were not available. Um, one of the measures probably necessary in that area is, is uh, regulations and laws for managing whatever stock of medicines that we might have left. Uh, so things here, activities uh, or <coughs> steps to, to be taken can be anything from laws and regulations, uh, buying new kits, uh, making people more aware, uh, establishing structures and, and outfits to deal with stuff. I could talk about this for several weeks, I guess, but uh, let's stop, uh, stop there. Thank you very much. Honestly, I really don't know where to start because there are so many interesting things. But uh, maybe I should start with, um, with what you're really talking about is what I see is a gradual process of awakening. That is what's happening in the West, in the Western democracies. And this, uh, during this gradual awakening process, there are a lot of people who are still very sleepy. Uh, and they are so sleepy today, e in the press especially, 
because that's uh, thank you by the way for your kind words but uh, I don't think the press is up to uh, par when it comes to uh, understanding what is going on at the moment um, I can say that because now I'm an independent journalist I'm not affiliated to any uh, press organ any longer <laughs> Uh, but I think that's very important because uh, uh, even if, uh, and uh, I'm now talking from my heart really and not from my mind, uh, because the press is one of the most important means of communication. And when I say the press, that means electronic media and all, all the media, uh, not only the written press. And I think, uh, just to start out, I think that is one of the big problems at the moment because in a Western society, we are so accustomed to, and the press itself, media itself, are so accustomed to different points of opinion, and we try to weigh the different points of opinion. We say, okay, uh, they say this, they say that, and the truth is more or less in the middle. But at the moment, what I see is that we have a concerted effort of lies. And you, c uh, you can't print a lie saying that they claim to say this, they claim to do that, you have to do more. And that is why I uh, disagree a little bit uh, with you about what, what the press has done up to now. And, uh, but maybe in, during this gradual process of awakening, even the press will awake. Uh, as, as I said, you, you touched upon such, uh, such a lot of issues. Maybe, uh, maybe we could start... Um, what Johanna Smith said, you talked about the generational change. I think that is uh, one of the most important points to start out with because uh, the old generation, the older generations, which, are, which I belong to, are going out of business. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> uh, and um, the thing is that uh, young people, they, they don't listen to older people's experiences. They listen to influencers. And these are bloggers, uh, and they talk. To, uh, they listen to. They are so accustomed to finding their uh, kind of information from other sources than, let's say, the, the traditional sources. It used to be the parents, the grandparents, or uncles, uh, aunts, and people in the family, and also politicians who have gone through a certain area. So, could you say a little bit uh, more about this, the generational change, how that affects you, the work that you are doing? And, and how to, let's say, to, uh, to counter uh, what we heard now, this um, effort by a non-democratic actor. Mm. Okay. Uh, yes, this is one of those, at least the, the future uh, uh, issues. Uh, but I, I um, take a little bit back in the way that we need to understand where this, that comes from, that uh, when we're talking about the generational change. It's, uh, it's not necessarily either the outside influence that has changed this. It is purely the, the certain time limit and the, the environment around you when it changes. So, um, you know, it's not an adversary's doing that our media landscape has changed because technological revolution has brought social media into it. It's only that they have seen the opportunity how they can meddle there. But the, uh, the generational change uh, is definitely um, basically our own doing then only someone perhaps uses it, it's in own advantage. Um, and there it uh, comes into the, the, the interconnectiveness is one of the things in the way that not necessarily 
um, the new generations or upcoming uh, generations, they don't necessarily look at anymore, for example, the, the national aspect, national unity, uh, patriotism, quite the same way at all. That's one of the things. And then if that changes, then someone outside can obviously use that. <laughs> also, the, the, uh, the leadership um, aspect in the way that, you know, if Putin looks really cool when he takes the shirt off or, or flies a, a jet or something like that, and then a parent comes and says, no, that's not cool at all. You know, he's not, he's not a, a, a good leader. And then they go, you know, I think he is cool and I think he is a cool leader. And then you say, no, it's not. Then we're coming exactly what I was talking about into this thing that you need to know yourself why you say that Putin is cool if he looks cool. So, so and to be able to argue why perhaps an authoritarian regime is not cool get a thing, uh, why that brings certain things, what is the problems in the countries uh, themselves? Because if you see only one thing, so, so there are a lot of these issues that comes around the kind of the sur our own surrounding has changed. Also, perhaps the, the priorities in educational aspects and things like that. Um, we have, for example, sidelined history quite a lot in our curriculums and so on. So, um, but this is not, I mean, in research-wise, if you look at it, it is also kind of the memories that what you have lived with. So in that way, the weird way, I could say that I'm closer to my grandparents in a worldview than to my, pa uh, my own children. So that's the kind of generation. My, my grandparents were the ones who experienced the, the Second World War, the building up the Europe after that. They children are, are part, of, part of that old framework, very much also uh, kind of uh, certain uh, n national aspects, but also the fact that, oh, it's bad to be too nationalistic, for example. Mm. Uh, and perhaps I'm not as, uh, as, as much, but then definitely my children don't see the view uh, uh, things uh, at all the same way. So, so uh, that's kind of the, the importance of the, mm. to understand. And mm. then someone can use this mm. in their advantage if they want to. Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, there's only one problem. I can't understand how a 64-year-old man with a, uh, with a shirt off is cool. But that's my problem. <laughs> That's my problem. He wasn't actually 64 then. No, he was only <laughs> 62. <laughs> well, anyway, um, uh, very good points. Um, uh, and especially the thing you said about sidelining history in the curriculums, mm -hmm. because uh, that is a big mistake that's being done in Western societies, and especially in Norway as well. Uh, because, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it has a tendency to, uh, to emulate itself. So there, is, there are some uh, um, historical lines that we have to bear in mind if we are to understand the present and the future as well. Um, another thing um, that you uh, talked about was improving resilience. And I think that is uh, one of the main points. How do you, you mentioned a lot of things that can be done and is, uh, are being done at the moment. But how, how do you prepare a... Uh, <laughs> let's say, a, a democratic society, uh, that there is a threat. Maybe you're not using the, w uh, the word war, mm. and th that is uh, maybe correct because we are allergic in this country to talking about war. Uh, but um, uh, how, do, how do you get people to understand that there is some threat emanating from an external actor 
and uh, at the same time you have to do do something both in the public and in uh, in uh, in um, uh, in the society as a whole and to improve the resilience of this democratic society. Can you? Yeah, uh, well, I, I do think people and society has grown up in a way. Uh, we've discussed this hybrid cyber manipulation things now for many, many years. Uh, so my impression is that it's taken seriously. I, I think if, if Norwegian politicians one day come and say that we will have to do this and this and take these measures mm. uh, to ensure the you know, national security, national safety, and, and mm. your individual safety, mm. uh, that would be uh, listened to and heeded by the population. I, I, at least if, if you take the, uh, take the time to explain people why this is going on, uh, and that's why I also said initially that it, you know it's it's very important that we have this discussion so that mm. people are in a way uh, prepared. Uh, I mentioned I've been working with the uh, a little bit with the uh, directorate for uh, civil protection. Uh, they're working with all the uh, counties and municipalities on a, on a daily basis, uh, and we do see when we have a uh, you know a flood or whatever it is, uh, the system works pretty well. Uh, people are prepared to take you know, extraordinary measures and do what it's, it, it requires. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are, they are also very eager to, to publish their reports and talk to people about it. So, mm -hmm. so and then keeping the discussion alive is, is, is essential. And, and uh, you, know, you know, touching a little bit on the discussion you had, um, I'm not very worried about today's young people. Uh, in the 50s, people were concerned because, because the young listened to rock and roll, okay? <laughs> So uh, today we're concerned because they, they tweet too much or they don't tweet at, at all. They're, they're on Instagram and, and uh, WhatsApp and elsewhere. Um, so I'm not that concerned. And, and also about the manipulation there. Um, yes, you can manipulate social media, but there's, a f there's an enormous competition there. There's so much material out there. So if you're not competitive, trustworthy, interesting, they just ignore it. Um, so, uh, and also uh, rather optimistic when it comes to Norwegian media, frankly, uh, because <laughs> okay. they, they play an important role in communicating this to the, to the public. Uh, I think in 2014, uh, there was the, the old journalistic approach that, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. So uh, someone said this, this guy here, the green man is a, a, a Russian soldier, but the, uh, the Russian Minister of Defense says no. Mm. I.e. is probably half Russian or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but today, you know, journalists wouldn't buy that. You know, you, you're aware that, you know, the, this is one story and this is the other story and the truth is almost there, right? So yeah. okay. I, I, I do think both media and people are aware of that today. Okay? It's good that you're very optimistic when it comes to the young people. Anyway, Njord, uh, when you did the work, uh, you had a lot of work to do with international partners. And uh, could you, uh, could you, were there some disagreements? Of course there were disagreements, but uh, how did you arrive at the conclusion of the paper that you wrote? And uh, could you detect different approaches from different parts of the world, different parts of, uh, well, organizations, anything like that? Mm. So I've been in the cycle the last two years, but mm. I know uh, I know about the entire project. So 
uh, I think it's fair to say that it ha it was um, was a rough start because uh, it was very unclear uh, what was the interest of maybe the military participants versus the civil um, ministries uh, or the researchers. So uh, I was told that the first year was much used to debating actually what are mm. we supposed to do or what should we do or mm. people threatened to leave etc. Uh, but uh, I think. Um, I think uh, the overall experience has been that to actually have this international group and the different backgrounds has been a strength and where you could utilize, you know, connection points to politics, to academia or to the military and, 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 and get something out of it. But uh, I don't think it was a very easy start, at least. I just want to grab one of the comments that have been. So, so I agree a lot on, on several things here. I think there's a gener generational um, um component, but there's a shift in our days. And I've been uh, talking to students coming to me at NUPI and, you know, wanting to interview me about the, the threats, scenarios, geopolitics, etc. And, and, and they understand that what they maybe thought a few years ago is changing when it comes to what is actually the, the major power's interest in the global politics. Uh, it's not necessarily like the 90s. It's more competitive, more... Um, uh, competing interests actually colliding. And um, I think when it comes to our outreach, we have had a lot of attention and interest. Uh, Patrick and, and I have been um, holding uh, presentations in Norway and abroad, and, and there's a high turnout. I mean, people are very interested, interested, including political elites and decision makers, but there might be a need to systematize mm -hmm. the sort of like the information here. And as uh, Gerhard Hogan Carlson says, uh, I think it's a greater sort of like realization that people are actually lying out there. There's mm. not necessarily like mm. always some truth in the middle. And, and that is like a little bit new to get adjusted to, mm -hmm. that people in official position actually lies. Mm. And, um, and to get this systematized has been a good uh, or an important contribution in this, in this project. Mm. Hannah, you had a... Yeah, yeah. I, I would like to continue a little bit this, that, that, that this, this, that the there is a new generation, mm. doesn't necessarily mean uh, automatically threat or that that would be a lost generation. But what we need to understand is that this is a, a kind of a, a point of change. And when there is a point of change, something different is coming. And there is a clash. Uh, good example, people, some people like to uh, look at the, you know, the TV if you remember what normal TV is, so you're sitting <laughs> in a sofa and watching the TV. And then there is the, those who actually want to have this little thing, and wherever they are, in a bus, they're watching it, and they're calling it watching a TV. This is a change. Mm. This is two different things. Uh, it's not to say which one is right or wrong in that way, but the fact is that we have, uh, every time, when there was an industrial revolution, uh, people were against cars and wanted to keep the horses. And there was a clash. Mm. Uh, villages were fighting wh whether one person can have a car there because the horses are so good and the car causes noise and, and uh, so on. So there is a clash. Um, so this is the thing, what we're talking about, that when there is that type of a situation in a history, uh, we need to understand mm. that when we have already uh, totally our own doing and our own thing, um, that type of a situation, then an outsider can use that mm. 
mm. one way or another. And it is not only, you know, the fact that uh, perhaps the, the social media is more for the old <laughs> generation than the new generation. But then when it comes to the politics and voting mm. and so on, then perhaps the new generation brings mm. a different type of a politics into it. Politics is changing because of those views. Mm. And this we need to understand. So mm. the exact that's why we're talking about this hybrid. There are many, many different elements, basically, um, and um, I like to talk about the threat aspect because that is a threat, but if we can control it or counter it or understand the whole thing, perhaps it's not any more than mm. a threat. But mm. this is the, the uh, central and the core mm. to understand the dynamics and the potential threat that lies on, on today's, mm. perhaps, uh, environment. Mm. You talked about the outreach, Njord. Uh, do you, you get students, of course, coming to NUPI, and they are very interested, uh, interested in it, in international politics and, uh, and have a high level of understanding. But do you have an outreach to, let's say, uh, second grade students as well? Do you, what do you do to inform them about this, what the project that you have been through and what the, all these uh, different threats or uh, different new possibilities are? Uh, well, I don't think we have had so much uh, mm. outreach to like uh, junior high school or yeah, high school students. Uh, we probably should do more of that. I mean, uh, the Atlantic Committee is uh, certainly mm. having those type of programs, yes. and um, mm. but I would say so far it has been more to professionals mm. and students mm. and um, bureaucracy. Uh, okay, mm. we are nearly at the end, uh, so. Um, um, I'm not trying to sum up this uh, very interesting uh, uh, two hours, but what I would say that uh, what what I think we in Norway especially can learn is the Finnish experience of the cross-sector, cross-sector uh, cooperation, and that that has been for a, quite a long time, and this is something that we can learn from, lessons learned, as I say. Uh, I would thank all the three uh, participants. Uh, it's been, as I said, an eye-opener to, to many people. And uh, maybe uh, you're right when you say that uh, things are happening at last. It has taken a lot of time. Maybe it uh, has to take a lot of time in democracies, but at least we're getting there to understand that there is a threat against our own society, the way we think, our values. And we have to counter that threat in many ways. So thank you all very much for your valuable contributions to that. Thank you. Thank you.